Have either of you been to a movie screening, particularly horror-wise, that has just rubbed you the wrong way? Uh, yeah, yeah, big time. Um, I feel like um, I feel like most public screenings are bad. I, not to spoil my unfriended piece, but I I feel like it's no secret that I'm a bigger fan of like sitting at my desk and watching a movie than I am of being in, in a theater as much as I love the theater. Um, one that comes to mind in particular was when I saw Suspiria on a, uh, like a 35 millimeter print. That's apparently like the only one and they were projecting subtitles and they were just wildly out of sync. I mean, that was one where I, it was such a bad like screening experience that I left before the Q and A cause I was like, I need to go wash the taste of this out of my mouth. And then, uh, Seeing Benedetta at NIF, um, I, I, I was telling my girlfriend beforehand, I was like, so this is a festival audience and people are going to laugh at anything that anybody could in any conceivable world conceivably laugh at. Anything that is at all quote unquote out there is going to get like a hearty chuckle. So it's a movie full of like torture and like gay sex that people are like chuckling heartily at like both. We were just kind of like, oh, well, all right, well, you know, I, I think you see what I was talking about when I mentioned festival audiences. And it was a good, like, <laughs> it was a good, I guess, in a way, a good first experience of the festival audience. And do you think that's just, like, because they're uncomfortable? They, like, want to seem like they get yeah. whatever it is or have a, like, meta understanding? I think it's, yeah, I think that's part of it. I, I definitely, and it's, and it's totally consistent across the board, like, any festival I've been at. Um, I, I, I kind of wanted to see this. There's this movie, um called like bad luck banging or loony porn that apparently opens with like unsimulated sex i would love to see how a festival audience responds to that because i think you must literally have people doing like the rodney dangerfield like collar thing when something like that is going on um, i don't know you see it you see a genre movie or you see something with content that's at all uh i don't know off the beaten path and people really uh yeah I, it's probably discomfort they respond with a a hearty chuckle that I don't know, can tend, can tend to make film-going experiences really, I don't know, uncomfortable, or at least like not what the filmmaker probably intended. Yeah, it's like a whole different type of horror. Right. I often find myself going like, God, thank God the filmmaker wasn't there to see this. Snow, what about you? Um, you know, I mostly watch them at home. Although any horror movie I watch with, with my um, pop gets some amount of unwanted narration. But... <sighs> Oh no, now he'll probably listen to this. That's okay. He'll he'll chuckle at it where it's like, okay, okay, I'm trying to get in the moment of this scary thing happening on screen. Um, but you know, that's just watching movies with your dad. <laughs> My brother and I went to see The Hills Have Eyes, the Hollywood Theater. But before the movie, like the presenter gave a great intro and was like, so this is, you know, Wes Craven, his second major film it's not funny. Like it's not meant to be funny. Like this was a brilliant man who knew exactly what he was doing and how to scare people and how to get under their skin. And the crowd weed is legal in Oregon. I'll, 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 I'll give that. But like people were laughing the entire time and they're like very concerning times, like the rape scene when the mother is shot, when they, the cannibals eat the father who's a cop they were like, yeah, death to pigs. It's like, oh, you're going that route. Okay. It was just odd. And I don't know. Wow. We both left just like, what do you do about that? I Yeah, we didn't have answers. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie too that's about like 
implicating people for like their behavior too and to see people like respond with like yipping and hollering has got to be a real like yeah, it was uncomfortable but anyway welcome back to another and the final october horror installment of our split pick series my name is craig wright we are continuing our series on the titans of american horror directors so far we've covered toby hooper bennett you were there for that one we looked at john carpenter we looked at Wes Craven, Bennett, you were there for that one. And today we are focusing on the zombie father of the dead, Mr. George Romero. Whoa. Bennett, you're back once again. How are you today? Hey, everybody. Uh, you know, I'm doing all right. It's been a, it's been a weird day. Uh, I saw the new uh, James Bond movie and it was quite an odyssey to get there and back. But, uh, you know, I'm here and uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, folks. I feel like you might need to uh, give a tiny more bit more detail. <laughs> no, I, it wasn't. It wasn't really that harrowing. Uh, but I'm uh, I'm happy to be here discussing uh, a film from another uh, another Pennsylvanian genius, much like myself, uh, George Romero. God, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, all right. I, I'm one of the world's greatest minds, and you know, for a time, he was one of the world's greatest directors. <laughs> passed the torch right to you, didn't he? He passed the torch right to me. <laughs> All right. You know how Walt Disney's last words were Kurt Russell? (laughs) George Romero's last words were Bennett (laughs) Clays. I never knew that. This is is new facts for me. I'm feeling educated. Yeah. All right. And making her split picks and podcast debut, we just found out, is Snow Lietta. Snow, how are you? I'm good. (laughs) Well, mostly, yeah. Getting over a cold, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. I mean, for reasons that we did not know, you might be able to provide some more insight on your movie than we originally expected, so we'll get into that in a bit. So we have an interesting matchup of films today for George Romero. I love both these, so I'm excited to get going. But for a quick introduction, so Snow, Logan, originally picked Season of the Witch, and so she had her own reasons for picking it, but you picked it up, and do you want to just give us a little background on what you see in the film and why you like it? I found so much to delve into with Season of the Witch. So I, it's, I've seen a lot of witchy movies because I'm a witchy witch and we watch them sometimes for fun. Um, I love Romero's take on the magic and how she comes in contact with it and how it's really about her power of thought and will and you don't really see any actual magic going on in the movie. I love Romero's um, weaving of the way the magic comes into this woman's life. And I also love seeing the dichotomy of this character that's dealing with all these societal conventions as part of her personality and her pattern in life and how She starts down this road towards witchcraft, but also still has all this, like, God-fearing convention. And those two things really come out ahead through the whole movie. So her process of empowerment is less than linear. Her process of going into witchcraft is um, very subtle. It, like, feels like from her perspective a lot is happening. But when you think about what's literally happening in the movie, it's not much. It's all from the way she's feeling about it. And I loved watching those those processes through the movie. This movie doesn't have the best reputation, but I, I really enjoy it. I mean, I Very think he's, he's doing a lot here, yeah. So Bennett, 
you wrote the second October horror piece ever on Martin. I'm so excited you're finally talking about this one on the air with us. So what draws you to Martin? Uh, I'm a lifelong Pennsylvanian. Uh, my, uh, both my parents are from Buffalo. So I think like originally it was kind of like the rust belt of it all. I think it was that Romero situated a vampire story within this, um, very, I don't know, a, a very real world milieu that felt familiar. Um, and it's, it's just such an intriguing character study and it's only gotten more interesting the more times I've seen it. I've now seen it like eight times. It was only on like my sixth watch that it occurred to me that like the fantasy sequences we see throughout could just as easily be Lincoln Mazel's fantasies. Um, I think in writing about the amusement park, which I think we'll talk about uh, a little bit more later, I think in writing about that, like I started to see more in Martin. It's, I think it's one of the best horror movies ever made. It just gets more and more interesting the more I, I see it and think about it. And then, yeah, Season of the Witch. Um, I love Romero during this period, uh, the movies he made in kind of the mid to late 70s. He was uh, editing his own films at the time. And um, there can be like kind of a bluntness and obviousness, but like, I don't know, like uh, a, a blunt instrument still hits you pretty hard, right? Like <laughs> uh, there's something to be said for bluntness sometimes. Uh, it, it's, it's really effective here and in the crazies and in the amusement park as well. Going off of that though, like, I'm really excited for this matchup because Romero has said in the past that if he could remake any of his films, it would be Season of the Witch. I mean, he went as far as to say that he would have liked a second chance of directing it because he could barely stand to watch it. Martin, on the other hand, he has said is the only film he made where he was able to get every shot he wanted, and he really speaks glowingly about it. I mean, you, you can tell he has a good attachment to this film, and for very good reason. Um, we'll dive into both of those that's why he might feel that way. Let's get going on Season of the Witch, though. We'll go chronologically, and that one's up first. So Season of the Witch, I love the intro to this movie because it it grabs you into this world and does not let go. Um, it's a weird dream sequence. Snow, do you want to kind of walk us through what's going on there? Mm-hmm. It's a really uncomfortable dream sequence. Yes. Like, <laughs> you feel her discomfort. Um I want to talk about the sound more as we go on, especially when we're talking about amusement park later. Um, It starts with church bells and her heartbeat. And you can hear those interlaced. And and, um, throughout the movie, you hear a lot of bells, sound that feels like it's being heard like really close up, kind of like when you cover your ears and ticking of clocks. And it's, like feels like this constant pushing of time and then she's following behind her her husband at like I don't know 10 paces behind and all these branches keep hitting her in the face and then he doesn't even see her which is kind of how he ends up treating her throughout the movie whether he's awake or in a dream he's just reading a newspaper she sees her baby off to the side he's eating an egg right before she sees her baby which is super weird and uncomfortable but feels like really heavy-handed symbolism of, like, she's just eggs and mother to him now. And then when they pass by later, she sees herself, like, on this swing. I feel like that's sort of this foreshadowing of her being playful again, finally. But, yeah, so so I love this opening dream sequence. I love the discomfort of seeing these, like, pieces of blood on her face and she's completely ignored. And then I also love how 
the dream sequences are followed through the movie. And she talks to her therapist at one point in the movie, and he talks about how she's the least reliable narrator of her own dream and viewer of her own dream, which is the opposite of what I've ever learned about dream interpretation, which I've done some dream interpretation. I have a friend who's very interested in it, and it's like absolutely the opposite through a witchcraft lens. And this whole movie is about her discovering witchcraft. And this man is telling her like, you're not part of this dream at all. This isn't about you. You can't reflect on yourself. And so where usually this whole like, oh, but it was a dream thing bothers me in movies. I really like it in this movie because it really speaks to her inner life that she's reflecting on for herself finally, rather than men dictating what it means to her. So it actually feels like a really good pillar through this film. I thought that was such an amazing way to depict like how condescended to she is that like the one person in her life who's supposed to be like, I don't know, like kind of like on her team and like helping her sort things out just says like, okay, so just so you know, you are the last person who's ever going to interpret what's going on to you specifically. Um, so good. And I, yeah, as much as like, it's so easy to roll your eyes as like, the, it was a dream thing. I love how it's repeated throughout it. And I like that, like, the language for introducing what's about to be the dream is never the same. It's disorienting every time. It happens like eight times and you're still like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, shit, that was a dream. Um, and and it, it's disorienting when the, the clear like dream imagery starts to come in. I like that we get a dream on top of a dream within yeah, the first like 10 minutes. She wakes up from the first dream when he's walking her through the sort of uh, branches and then we get a second dream where she's being put in like a dog cage, even more unsubtle than the last, but no less effective. Um, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I really like it. It has such a bad reputation because I think, I don't know, people really chafe against the sort of like, I don't know, like film school affectations of this, the sort of like the kind of like obvious symbolism and the sort of like, I don't know, the sense of overwhelm, but like, so many movies that are so-called elevated horror are still just basically doing this. Mm-hmm. So do you feel the dreams are equally effective? Because I, I kind of am in the camp that that first one is so good that the other ones are not as important because they are like very much like, hey, you, do you get it yet? You know, but you do. I think the third one when she's being shown the house is also really effective. But I think the ones that are mm-hmm. more directly horror movie scenarios are less effective a little bit. The one, the, the, the ones that are like home invadery, I think get a little less effective. I think it becomes a little more obvious that you're in a dream before it happens. But um, I think the third one where the guy is like walking her through the house, again, as as um, blunt as the like commentary is, I think it's, it's super effective. And it's, um, I don't know, in, in the notes, um, Logan had put in a, a negative review or like a mixed review that talked about how the movie combines... Um, uh, like talkiness and um oh, sorry directness and talkiness and it, it it talks about the the combination of that like it's a bad thing but i like that um there's a weird combination of using these sort of like dreamlike symbols to communicate things and then also having people just go on these really long conversations explaining what's going on all of the plot mechanics in this movie are explained like so directly through these really long conversations. And I like how much time we spend in these like deadening suburban like living rooms. I don't, one of my favorite things about this movie is just the tacky like 70s decor. 
I didn't want that wallpaper. Yeah. Oh, and that, that, I that want glass it. with like the weed leaf prints. Imagine having that up in your house in like 1973. That yeah. was like Spencer's oh, gift. Oh, and the little Spencer's babushka gifts. witch lamp. Like the little like babushka holding a bowl, but she's a lamp and she's there for her ceremonies. I love that. Think about how many like movies we get nowadays that like try to like nostalgically evoke these settings and just do such a piss poor job. Like the Fear Street <laughs> movies. You know, give me a thousand of these before another three Fear Streets. Like, I loved that bluntness for this movie in particular because I feel like that's where she's at. And that's a lot of what this is, is like facing yourself is a huge theme in this movie. And a lot of their conversations are about these like explorations and pushing pushing the boundaries. And they have this young sociology student professor person who's like bringing up all these ideas and talking about drugs and there's like talk of, you know, free love and lots of sex. So it's like, I feel like it's on everyone's minds. So it kind of makes sense for it to be that blunt in her mind and that blunt in their reality almost to me. Why don't we take a quick second to talk about the plot? (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, it follows a bored incredibly ignored housewife whose husband never asks her a question or really touches her affectionately through the entire film um even though he says we're doing all right kid or something like along those lines without asking her if she's doing all right and so she's very disaffected um and it follows her journey into witchcraft as a way out of this completely detached boring reality she meets a friend who's doing it. She finds out. So she's kind of like a housewife slash baby witch. And it also, you know, brings her into a different life where she's empowered and and has a little sexual affair and things like that as we go along. So one thing I think Romero does well is, you know, when she meets with the friend who is actually the witch, she mentions that, like, I can tell you're serious because you actually fear witchcraft and you're not just, like, interested. Like, you realize that it's a real thing. So, Snow, you mentioned at the top that you are a witch. Um, So I'm just curious, like, what drew you to witchcraft? And can you give us just, like, a miniature introduction into what witchcraft in 2021 looks like? Oh, goodness. So so I actually have trouble remembering what drew me into witchcraft because I just remember always feeling like I was a witch pretty much. I've been practicing on and off for, oh gosh, 25 years, like since I was like nine years old. And yeah. people always are like, well, what inspired you? And I cannot for the life of me remember. I was a huge Buffy fan. So someone was like, it must have been Willow. But I was like, no, because I remember being interested before I saw that. And I liked it once I saw it, but I was already interested. I think for me, it's always been like a connection to nature, a belief in magic, whether magic is talking about like, like when I was a kid, I'm sure it was more like, oh, I believe in like, you know, I'm actually going to be able to do magic that you can see and poof. But now it's more just like the magic of all interconnectedness. And... When I say practicing on on and off, I always felt like a witch, but I feel like to really call yourself a witch, you need to be practicing because witchcraft is very much the craft, like celebrating sabbats and espats and, you know, working with the seasons, working with spellcraft. Um, What it looks like to be a witch in 2021, I love it now. (laughs) Um, For the past few years, I've been part of a huge community that's in DC. It's very... 
it's a lot more open these days. So for a long time, you kind of had to know someone who knew someone, which you get a little bit of that in this movie. Um, right. Although they're at the precipice, like when it set, came out in 73, Buckland had gotten really who was who kind of brought Wicca to the United States from um, from Britain. It had become big again in Britain in the past decade. He brought that over in the mid-60s and got outed as a witch, and it became more public, and that's when it became easier to get materials on witchcraft and a little more accepted within the people who were accepting more of the counterculture. Um, it still had a lot of pushback for years to come, like obviously from a lot of monotheistic religions, later with the satanic panic. Like There's always been a lot of pushback, um, but it's become more and more open, and the organization I'm part of, part of their purpose is actually to be open and to be a place that people can come and see, like, oh, it's public, and you can come see what we do, and it's not scary, and we'll teach you, like, we have lessons online. You can go see me talk about witchcraft for an hour if you want sometime. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, now it's about community. It's a religion. We definitely do witchcraft. We practice magic and... You know, there are some some parts of that that still scare people, but... What's the common reaction when you tell people I'm a witch? Oh, goodness. It depends on the person. It really does. Um, I mean, it's definitely changed a lot for the better. Like, when I was a kid and I told my mom I was a witch, she was like, people are going to be scared of you. And she was, like, so worried that everyone would be afraid of me and not want to talk to me. And now you don't mm-hmm. get that reaction as much. But it is okay. funny because you still get hesitancy, but people think it's so cool to like talk about these pagan themes or like kind of play with the idea of being pagan or talk about how Christmas is truly pagan. But then when you're like, no, I really am a witch, like this is my religion and I wholeheartedly follow it throughout the year, then they get a little uncomfortable. It's like too real. So you okay. do come up against that a lot where people want to have parties where they're witchy and celebrate the moon. But then if you're like, real about it they're a little bit like "Ooh, you're a little odd or are you crazy or or you're foolish to be so serious about it kind of thing okay i mean not that we're that serious we're pretty silly as a group but you know i'm curious like (laughs) in this movie she does at one point she goes to the store and the like like i said donovan's season of the witch is playing he goes oh are you a witch or something he's like totally joking and she's like not really comfortable saying yes yet but she starts reading from a book and is it something that is just like guitar where you can just i know the b7 chord now i'm a witch like is it like that or is there a lot more to it that does take in all these outside influences too um (laughs) so yes and no i mean it definitely can be like that like it's funny because this is like a middle-aged housewife and her story we're following, but it really does remind me of a lot of teenagers and their baby witch experience, like going into a store and getting a book for the first time and looking up the spells and like trying these spells, even though you don't know what they're talking about and like going straight. I love that she went straight for like pin pricking her finger and using blood magic, which is like not something that's very common, but I feel like it's something every 12 year old does. If they're practicing witchcraft for the first time, they've got to get that little, like, blood drop in there. Um, so, so, yes, you can pick it up like that. I would say as far as, like, actually connecting to magic in a powerful way that, like, you sustain and, like, you become a witch 
where you're practicing consistently is obviously there's a lot more to it. And what that is can really change because witchcraft and paganism are hugely broad categories. And like even within my community, there's so many different ways people practice, but it does become a more layered thing as you go on. It seems like now, Romero, people kind of are like, oh, wow, what a like crappy attempt at a feminist movie. But this was 1973, and there weren't a ton of male directors trying to present feminism in a intelligent way. The other complaint is that it's often seen as amateurish. So thematically and technically, how, how do you feel this movie comes across? That's a broad question, but feel free to attack any angle you want. <laughs> Uh, I mean, as far as the calls that it's amateurish, once again, you say that like it's a bad thing. I don't know. I mean, I feel like Andrew Saris was right about a lot of things. He was very, very, very wrong about the idea that to be a great director, one has to be a good director from a technical perspective. And I don't know. I, I, I think Romero is clearly getting his feet under him in Season of the Witch. He's clearly like throwing a lot of things at the wall. He's clearly very like high on like the possibilities of, of an art form he's learning. Um, I'm pretty sure in like interviews about it, I think one of the reasons he wishes he could remake it is because he was sort of kind of learning the, the apparatus and the medium. Right. And I don't know. I think that there's there's an interesting resonance with with Joan there. She's she's understanding witchcraft. She's becoming. She's she's learning how to you know make use of all sorts of new forces and tools the same way her her filmmaker is, and um, I don't know there's something beautiful if occasionally amateurish there. It made it feel exciting in some ways where it wasn't like you know so polished like it there was something really interesting about the way a lot of it came across to me. Well, I just I don't know like dreams are messy. These sort of like conversations that we're supposed to be seeing between people who are like kind of sort of friends who are like really only friends because they have to be because like oh like we're the we're the families we're the couples in this like suburb we're supposed to be you know entertaining one another like this is how those conversations go. I don't know. I felt the sort of like slapdash nature of some of the things was 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 fitting. Yeah, dreams are messy, and then also this process of exploration she's going through is messy, which is part of what I yeah. feel like you're, you're going to fuck up. Too. You're going to set yourself on fire or something, yeah. Yeah, and everything's going to feel, like, really stuff. eerie and extreme, even though all you're doing is, like, standing outside with a candle. Like, yeah, it, it matched in a cool way. After Night of the Living Dead, you know, he was praised for kind of breaking down racial barriers, and you know, he essentially has said, like, he was a good actor, so I used him, you know? Um, but with Seasons of the Witch, he very much was going for feminism and like he didn't make another of the dead film until he had a like concrete theme. And that's why I was in the shopping mall and he wanted to show that like even after dead or like during the apocalypse, like we're still going to be at the mall and things like that. So how, how do you feel he did handle his overall overarching themes in this one? So I loved most of the way he followed that theme uh, I found the last scene really interesting, but it made me wonder what he was trying to say when he presented her again with a leash, which is not something I've ever heard of happening in a ceremony. A lot of the other things I saw in that ceremony were very familiar, but like this whole thing with the leash, which was very reminiscent of that very blunt thematic dream of her husband leaving her in the kennel. And I was like, is he saying she's just tied to something else now? 
I, I liked it from the perspective of her character, because I feel like her character wanted to venture into this new adventure of witchcraft, but was very held back by her Catholicism, by her convention, by all these old fears. And but yeah, with the with the leash at the end, I just wasn't sure like what like it made sense for her that she would need to feel tied and tethered to this new thing. But I wasn't sure what that said about her feminist journey that now she's just tied up again. It seems like a weirdly reactionary move to have like being initiated into the coven really call to mind the the um, like nightmare she has about living with her husband. And it suggests to me that like Romero was maybe not such a groovy guy <laughs> after all, even if he was willing to like, uh, I don't know, even if he was willing to acknowledge that like men in 1973 are trash, I think he's still basically like kind of like clutching his pearls at the thought of witchcraft, um, which is a bit of a bummer, <laughs> but... And that, that was my takeaway at first. So, like, it worked a little bit for her, but I didn't like it that was actually in the ritual because that wasn't a dream or anything. That wasn't... So I loved it up till that point. <laughs> I love okay. the scene at the end where they're saying, like, do you remember Jack's wife? And I feel like it's echoing to her, like, do you remember Jack's wife? Because she's not Jack's wife anymore. You know, she's her yeah. own person. And That's I love her big hair, and I love that whole thing, and it, that felt very much like the epitome of her feminist journey. And, and I mean, we all, I, I don't know if you guys felt that way, but I, I loved that she killed her husband. Like he was a jerk. No one really cared. It was kind of an accident. Maybe not. It was cathartic, but I loved it in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so all of that worked for me, just the leash thing at the end. Cause it was like such a vivid image and it brought up <clears throat> this like confinement. And I felt like her witchcraft journey was the opposite of that. Yeah, it's such a it's such a weird note, but I, I it's interesting that you think that you see the um the the Jack's wife ending as maybe being a signal that she's like transcended that because I see it as kind of being of a piece with the the leash and her initiation into witchcraft. I see it as being kind of like the ending to the Heartbreak Kid. It's like she thought she was escaping a certain kind of like subjugation, and in reality. Ooh, she's really kind of like right back where she started. Like I see it as in the minds of the other kind of housewives in Pittsburgh, she's always just going to be Jack's wife. Even if she fucking killed Jack, she's still, you know, Jack is still there kind of like hanging over her. And uh. Yeah, and I, I mean, I see that piece where in society she's still seen as that, but she doesn't seem to give a fuck. At, yeah. in that scene and that's what I think is powerful for me about that scene is they're saying like oh Jack's wife and I feel like because it's focused on her and you're seeing her like I feel like she's so transcended that and at the beginning they're like talking about like oh this girl's a witch and she couldn't come to this party but now she's like on the other side she's not like this like unknowing unfeeling confined housewife side she's on this side that's like a totally different perspective and I liked that at the end there's a, yeah, there's definitely a self-possession that she doesn't have um, earlier on, for sure. Um, I just, I don't know, I, I guess I also find it um, kind of a, a punch in the gut that, like, she certainly hasn't been able to transcend these, like, tedious suburban parties. Like, like this. this like, <laughs> even if you're a witch, like, you're going to be stuck doing this bullshit. Um, and, like, I don't know, it seems like the movie gets, like, tagged for being, like, slow, but, like, you need to spend time in the doldrums for, like, the, the witchcraft to have, like, an impact for her to you know, for her killing Jack to, to hit as hard as it ultimately does. So this movie did go through three title, or I guess two title changes. It 
began production with the title Jack's Wife, which you know echoes to the final line. The studio changed it to Hungry Wives and cut it down from 130 minutes to 89. They tried to market it as a softcore porn and failed, and then it finally came out later as Season of the Witch. What does the history of these titles, what, what do they say about the film? I mean, because all of them are very, very different. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, I think I, maybe I, maybe you would disagree. I think Jack's Wife is like the best title. Um, not just because it has that, uh, oh, they said it resonates with the final line, but because like it, um, I don't know, it, it, it speaks to this sort of like role she's playing that she's hoping to transcend. And then maybe in the end she maybe transcends it, maybe doesn't. It has this weird resonance, uh, Hungry Wives and the poster that we've seen for Hungry Wives. <laughs> it's really, pretty hilarious. Yeah. I, I, Season of the Witch. And even, even the song's inclusion in the movie, I think, speaks to sort of like a misunderstanding about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it, it gives you like an expectation that you're in for something like, I don't know, a little like spookier, a little sexier than what you ultimately get. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think Jack's Wife is the best title. Hungry Wives doesn't really make sense to me because she's the only (laughs) wife like yes she's hungry for more but like it doesn't make any sense it makes it sound like there's going to be like multiple witches yeah it makes it sound like it's gonna be like a witches of eastwick sort of a situation yeah like all these women becoming witches like starting their own little coven i mean that would be a cool movie but a very different movie um Uh, yeah, and Season of the Witch, like, it's fine, but it feels kind of, like, trendy and marketable and fun is what it felt like to me. Like, oh, a good thing to name it in the 70s and people will come see it. And I didn't mind the song in the scene because it felt like she was, like, feeling youthful and fun. And that's kind of, like, what the song felt like to me in that scene. Like, oh, I'm going shopping and I'm exploring this new thing and suddenly I'm in, like, bell bottoms instead of these, like, austere suits. But, but yeah, I didn't think it needed to be the title. I feel like it puts too much importance on that kind of feeling. Bennett, were there anything you wanted to cover on Season of the Witch before we get going? Um, so her daughter's boyfriend, who she ends up hooking up with, is like the TA at the local college. And I think he is one of the best... Uh, uh, I don't want to say like straw man because it's making it sound like it's better. He's, he's one of the best um, like he, living symbols for like the arguments that Romero is trying to make about society's attitudes toward men and women. Um, he's clearly pitched as being somewhere between her daughter's age and her age, yet he presents himself as very much a kid. Right. He's got he's got gray hair. He's always wearing like a tweed jacket. And they have this confrontation where he's sitting at, like, his desk in front of a bunch of students' desks. And he keeps presenting himself as, like, the kid, as, like, the young one. And I felt like, as on the nose as it is, I felt like it was, I don't know, it was, like, it was great to have Romero have, like, a literal mouthpiece for, like, um, the the bizarre way in which men and women seem to age differently in the eyes of society. Um, That this guy can, like... I don't know, straddle the line between like adulthood and youth all to his benefit. He can have this weird authority, but then also basically just do whatever he wants and be like, well, hey, it's us crazy kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. And I felt like he also used that character to um, like, yes, he was self-serving like with, oh, I can just be a kid. But he also questioned like, what makes you feel old? Like he like asked that of the woman, like, who told you that, that you're past your prime when he's, like, pretending to give her grass 
And then he, like, ends up sleeping with the Mrs. Robinson. But then later, like, she's revered as looking so young and feeling more young. So I don't know, this question of, like, how much of age is in our head, I feel like, is there with that character, too? And, like, what makes him a kid? Is it the way he's living his life versus, like... And what makes her later feel more youthful? Is it the fact that she no longer has a husband and she's, like, doing her own thing? Like, <laughs> how, um, about, uh, how about when he says, why don't you just have a glass of hot milk and go to sleep? Right? <laughs> but, yeah, how about him just, like, telling her to go to sleep all the time and being like, oh, just go back to bed. And needing to just kick some ass. Yeah, or yeah. and then just kick some you ass. You should have kicked some ass. Yeah. <laughs> It also takes him a really long time to apologize for hitting her. That so long that I was like, so are we supposed to understand that he hit her again in between this and we just haven't seen her? And I was like, oh no, he's apologizing for this scene like 30 minutes earlier and it's finally coming well, around. Well, I assumed he had hit her though before we meet them too because it's enough. Oh yeah, I figure it's yeah, it's a like, reasonably yeah. regular recurrence. The movie kind of uh, situates us within a milieu where it's like, it's shocking but not surprising when it happens. Yeah. yeah. I really... Um, love that all this fear like she has all these nightmares about like the devil or whatever it seems to come from the bible and not her exploration of witchcraft like she goes to the bible and Mm -hmm. then suddenly is like haunted by all these things and she's like reading stuff backwards from the bible and i just found that really interesting i I love the the handmade quality of the dream sequences that he's wearing like a halloween mask it feels very like of a piece with like a lot of like the um, horror in the real world movies that I like now. I hate to always compare everything to Joel Petrykis, but it's very Joel Petrykis. And um, yeah, I um, it, it, thank you for bringing that up. That it, it seems like her her misgivings are coming out of the Bible. I don't know. I that's maybe like Romero t- tipping his hand more toward the like actually I'm I'm anti Christianity uh, again. I don't know. There's yeah. It, it's it's maybe him, yeah, saying that this is 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 as as guilty of of, of sowing sort of uh, I don't know bad violent thoughts as as witchcraft is. Yeah, and they talk about like the sin of thought and then the power of thought, like how like oh you're Catholic isn't thinking about that even a sin when she's talking about possibly having an affair, and then later they have this whole conversation about how magic might just be the power of thought. Also, just one little tidbit: I had no idea what virago was. So I look up what Virago is, and it means, like, bad, ill-tempered woman. When she's, like, conjuring and then, like, banishing this Virago. That's the only thing I can find, which I wonder if Romero did that intentionally, that she's trying to, like, banish herself. Like, it's like, I just thought that was really interesting. (laughs) And then it goes to the scene of her, like, blowing, blowing dandelions. So I mentioned earlier Romero has said this is the film he would most like to have remade. Why do you think he might feel that way? I mean, obviously there's a lot going on, but... I mean, for me, I was reading some of those notes and there was a question posed about the acting and I was thinking about that because I I came to like her sort of really simple performance as it went on, but I do feel like if there had been an actress that had shown a little more nuance with this journey, it could have brought a lot more to this film and helped it feel deeper. Same with her husband. Like, it kind of just felt a little bit flat at times where I feel like I know these characters in real life. I know, like, you've seen these people and there's so much rich nuance, so... 
I don't know if that was part of his thinking or if his was more like the way it was shot or because honestly the way it was shot and edited didn't bother me as much like yes it felt very like blunt and whatever but it worked fine for me I loved the like weird pink blood it felt very like fantastical and like her perspective when she shot her husband but um so I is there does he talk about why he wanted to remake it so snow from what I have read he kind of just has almost disowned it like it's kind of just like oh you know I made that when I was young whatever like if I could redo one it would be that he did mention that like he was learning how the like building blocks of film like how to attach a lens to a camera and how to put a camera on a dolly so I'm sure there are technical aspects that he sees and just like oh my god I could do that so much better now but yeah Bennett do you have anything to add so this actually brings it around to um a line that I think stuck out for all of us when uh, Joan's therapist says the least qualified person to understand a dream is the dreamer. <laughs> I think oftentimes the least qualified person to uh, comment on a filmography is the filmmaker. Uh, this film is a lot better, I think. I think we'd all agree that Romero gives uh, himself credit for. But um, seeing that he loves Martin so much, and I think... Um, the, the stylistic similarities we can see between this and Martin and the amusement park and the crazies kind of that, that era of seventies movies. I think he probably thinks of himself as having like just gotten better as a filmmaker and just more competent as a filmmaker throughout the era. And he probably, if he, if he views Martin that highly, he probably thinks of Martin as the film where he like became a serious filmmaker. So I think, I don't know. I think everything before I probably looks a little amateurish in, in hindsight, but, uh, I don't know. Give yourself a little credit, George, right. uh, wherever you are, because uh, I don't know. He came out of the gate swinging. <laughs> yeah, he did. I agree. I mean, and um, I wonder if he came back with what he knew, if it would end up better or worse, you know, like because maybe he would have like over polished it and you would lose this kind of like odd, disorienting clunkiness almost that works for the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for either of you, but I think like, I, I, just, I think the notion that like the kind of like figuring it out as you go along, it, it suits the story. It suits the, the characters. It's, this movie is, I think all the more interesting for its rougher, more amateurish qualities. I, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think one of the strengths is that it is just so not flatline, but it's just, kind of consistent throughout like it it is billed now as a horror movie but in reality like you know there's some horror elements but i don't think personally i would say like it's one of romero's horror movies you know but it is he's tackling a lot and i do wonder if he almost would scale some elements back because like snow you mentioned maybe the acting could be better but i do think she does a very good job because she's supposed to be portraying like you know Main Street USA, just like suburban housewife. And to have like a crazy good actor, I I do kind of think would hurt the film because it would be distracting and you'd be focusing on just like what she's doing rather than like the entirety of the film. But maybe that's just me, but I, I think she's kind of perfect for that role. And I liked a lot about what she did, but there were just some like emotional depths that I felt were lacking in certain scenes. Mm -hmm. But like you said, maybe if you had had that, maybe it would have taken away from this sort of straightforward story he was telling. 
Do either of you have any final thoughts before we move on to Martin? Or um, I would just say, uh, give uh, give Season of the Witch a watch. And uh, if, okay. if anybody who's a moderator at Letterbox is listening, why don't you change the title back to Season of the Witch? I don't think any of us are going to confuse yeah, it with the, the Nicolas Cage movie <laughs> from uh, 2011. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back to talk about Martin. That's not like in the movies either. I saw a movie once where it happened every night. Now that's crazy. Those movies are crazy. Oh, so you mean to tell me all those movies are true? Or what else isn't true? I mean, are you going to dispel any other myths? Like uh, getting back to your grave before sunup or garlic? It's all crazy. So you don't burn up to a crisp in the sunlight? Nothing like that? Well, the sun bothers my eyes sometimes, especially when it's about time. When I get shaky. Yeah, well, listen, Cal, my sponsor's get getting shaky, so i got to yeah, take well, a break. Cal, Hang on a minute. Nighttimers have been talking to the Count. Yes, a real, live, honest-to-goodness vampire. So we have an odd situation. We actually have a newly released George Romero film this year. Bennett, you wrote a great piece about the amusement park for us when it came out. Do you want to give us a quick intro into why this film was just released and what it's all about? Sure, yeah. Um, so in the period after Season of the Witch, um, uh, George Romero was not, for whatever reason, um, the toast of uh, Hollywood. He was uh, kind of doing for hire work. He did a documentary about O.J. Simpson. Um, I think the only one of his letterbox entries that I haven't seen yet. Very excited to see it. Um, and uh, he did a film for the... Uh, Lutheran Service Society of Western Pennsylvania. This is a like public service announcement uh, about the kind of dangers of ageism and the uh, various kind of perils facing the elderly. Uh, if, if you see it, I think you'll understand why it was not um, why it was not enjoyed in, in church basements across Western Pennsylvania, why it was not a hit among its intended audience. It's, it's, it's a horror film. And a, a pretty harrowing one. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, as as I, I wrote about it in the piece, there are a couple sequences that are really effective. And I think anyone who's a fan of the Romero films of the 70s, of the crazy season of the witch, Martin, you'll see that Romero was really getting his, uh, his, his sort of filmmaking talents in order um, in making uh, the amusement park. And it's also the only other... Uh, screen credit of Lincoln Mazel, who plays the uh, villainous uh, elderly cousin in what I would argue is uh, Romero's masterpiece, 1978's Martin. I, I see a lot of parallels between Season of the Witch and Amusement Park, too, but it... Oh, yeah. Um, so the biggest one that stuck out to me is, like, they're going through those signs of why the elderly people can't ride the rides. And it like has to do with your income and it has to do with your diseases. And then it says, must not have a fear of the unknown. And to <laughs> me, like that really goes across all three movies, but especially Season of the Witch and Amusement Park of like this whole idea of fear and going where you were afraid to go and that somehow defying age and this link of fear and aging. Um yeah, and then the other thing that really got me was the, like, consumerism and amusements, obviously, which is, like, a really heavy-handed thing in there. He plays with really heavy-handed puns in Amusement Park, which was fun, like, being put out to pasture and over the hill. Um, but the whole idea that, like, these people are so, like, ugly and horrible and scary 
because they're just distracted by amusements. And then they talk about that, like, woman who's just trying to distract herself with being drunk all the time, the friend of of Joan in Season of the Witch as being what's ugly about society. So those two parallels were what really stuck out to me. Yeah, it's it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... Like, I, I read an interview with Romero's wife, and she said, like, I hadn't even heard of this movie before it basically turned up in my hands. And I asked him about it one day, and he was like, ah, it's just something I directed back to <laughs> What of it? Um, Martin, on the other hand, <laughs> very hard to see in the U.S. So, Bennett, this was, if I remember correctly, your first written piece for Split Tooth, right? I think so, yeah. I honestly think this is the second most talked about story at least in person from the website that i in in my experience because so many people like oh martin people have actually seen that movie and one of the main things they always say is oh that sounds great how do i find it (laughs) so is it typically hard to find because right now there's an hd version free on youtube you just google it yeah (laughs) it's It's, not it's it's hard to find legally the rights are unusual yeah. i think one person like owns the distribution rights to it or something but yeah there's there's kind of a rotating version available on youtube the version i first saw in probably the summer of like 2018 was up for a long time and has since been replaced by the version you and i watched uh, the last few days mm-hmm. um it's it's supposed to maybe be coming out on severin but i think there's once again kind of a rights hang up there um, and I think it has had a DVD release once. You can buy an out-of-print DVD on uh, on Amazon. Yeah, but, I mean, oh wow, Brett and I were able to rent it at Movie Madness, which is you know Portland's like last <laughs> standing video store. Philly's last one just closed. Oh, <laughs> seriously? <in> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's one of the few they have that's like you will pay a fifty dollar deposit for this movie, and it's like it's it's rare. So, <laughs> yeah. But that's the only way we could find it. I mean, I'm not tech savvy enough to find things on YouTube. <laughs> Is my, am I pronouncing this correctly? YouTube? <laughs> so, Bennett, for those who may struggle to track it down, do you want to give us a quick rundown of what Martin's all about? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so Martin is about the uh, the titular Martin, who is a he's like a late teens, early 20s um I think he's from, he's an Indianan who is coming to Braddock, Pennsylvania to live with his elderly cousin. Uh, he is pretty sure he's a vampire and his elderly cousin is 100% certain that he is a vampire, that he is the product of a curse that has been upon their family since uh, the days in the old country, which I think is supposed to be Lithuania. You know, Romero himself was Lithuanian uh, on his mother's side. Yeah, it's about him uh, coming to Braddock and whether or not he's a vampire. Um, throughout the film, his sort of um, his murders are intercut with these sort of fantasy sequences that are in black and white and depict the kind of more classic romantic ideal of, of, of the vampire. And they're characterized with what are, you know, very explicitly home invasions and, and, and rapes and murders. When I first wrote about it, we were in a time period when, like, incels were all the rage everybody was talking about incels it was incel this incel that um joker was about to come to theaters and i think i like a lot of um like a lot of film people um ranging from your average film goer to blue check critics i think i caught a little bit of joker fever and 
um, in vampire movies, it's always like appealing to kind of map on other like narratives onto the vampire narrative. The addiction narrative is a really common one, and Martin plays with that a lot. He's presented as being sort of addicted to these murders and addicted to drinking blood. He talks about getting shaky. He talks about uh, he talks about it almost in terms of a fix, but. When I wrote about it in 2019, I thought that it looked especially interesting from the vantage point of uh, incels and our discourse around incels because Martin also in the movie is portrayed as being really like uncomfortable around the idea of sex, but also like obsessed with it. And uh, one murder in particular, sort of like the centerpiece murder, he's surprised by um, another man there. And to me, that read as a real... Uh, Chad versus Virgin sort of uh, interaction. <laughs> I'm incapable of looking at any movie and not thinking about it in terms of like the internet terminology <laughs> that we're using today. Like I think I graduated from college exactly like two years too early. If I had graduated in like 2018, I could have written a thesis on like the Virgin and the Chad in the westerns of John Ford or something, and I could be I could be a fucking professor right now. I could be a tenure professor. <laughs> Sorry, that was a really long-winded explanation of Martin that uh, psychoanalyzed myself a little too much. But, um, yeah, basically, it's, it's a movie about a guy who's maybe a vampire. <laughs> There's the five-word version. <laughs> so, Snow, you just recently watched this movie for the first time. What yeah. were your first impressions of it? Mm, my first impressions of it? Well, um, I loved the older cousin character and mm-hmm. I loved that we have no idea whether he's batshit crazy or like actually onto something. And I love that we never get to know. Right. Right. Like we never, it's never clear whether he's a vampire. Um, and I really loved these juxtapositions of this very like gentle evil and these like chaotic scenes. Like I feel like Martin has, is, like, he's doing terrible things, but he's very gentle about it, and he's very right. shy. And then he has this, like, really harsh authoritarian cousin who we don't know whether he's crazy or not. And then he has these, like, scenes of mass harassment he's witnessing. And then at the end, he's, like, running through the scene of cops and criminals, like, killing each other in more numbers than he's killed throughout the entire movie. So that's sort of, like playing with this gentle, central, evil character and then other types of violence I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean, from the first scene, like, it opens with a great sequence on a train, mm-hmm. but Romero does set you up to root for Martin. Like, he, you know he's about to kill this woman, but it's like, oh, like, don't get caught. You know, he kind of toys with your emotions in a way there. I mean, do you... F- Feel he's a sympathetic character despite his awful tendencies i feel he's sympathetic i'm also like horrified by what he does and i'm sympathetic right. to the women too obviously but i do feel that he's sympathetic and there is something likable there are likable qualities about him yeah i think the the, the the sort of like queasy question of whether or not he's sympathetic is kind of what makes the movie so interesting on revisits for me because like the, the the central question of the movie is like whether who I don't know who is more insane him or Kuda right who's like much like 
Season of the Witch, it, it like maps these somewhat supernatural, these like kind of like stock horror things onto the real world, mm. and we we find ourselves wondering like, is Martin a vampire because he's constantly been told by the family that he's a vampire? Is this you know is this self generated, or is this actually supernatural? On certain rewatches, he's more sympathetic to me, and on certain rewatches, he's less sympathetic. I don't know. I, I think. What he really nails in that opening sequence, Romero, is just, it's just so unusual. Everything happens out of nowhere. The fact that we're on a train that's like barreling toward Pittsburgh, or I guess going toward New York, um, adds this sense of like propulsion to it. They're like careening around. It's so rough. Um, Even though he's like clearly like planned this meticulously and has all his tools, it still goes terribly. And like he's giving these sort of like cooing, like reassurances throughout that like really make it uniquely disturbing yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i'm always careful with the shots you won't feel yeah. anything so creepy i like that he he really like juggles it being it, it seeming like both a compulsion and a curse like it's clear that he like what has planned this and like wants to do this but also it, it's clear that he's like somewhat like conflicted in this that, that those reassurances come off like no i'm doing this because i have to and that is really creepy too and puts yeah. him in like a weird like what's real what's not middle ground the the, the mix of like compulsion and, and, and conflictedness and also like obviously switching back between the lens of is he a crazy family mate a member with mental health issues that isn't getting assistance or is this Nosferatu narrative correct because the cousin brings up like let's get you help let's do this and that's part of when he feels sympathetic is like, is he just this guy who really needs help and doesn't want to be hurting people because he numbs them out? He obviously doesn't want to cause pain, but he has these awful compulsions. He doesn't even kill that woman when he shows up and the the, the, the murder has been, you know, compromised. But I, uh, you, you, you mentioned how great it is that, um, like, in Mazel's character seems to kind of come out of nowhere and, like, we don't know anything. Don't you agree that, like, the movie would lose so much if we saw even a second of Martin's life in Indianapolis before he came to Braddock. Completely if we had agree. any idea, yeah, like, it's, it's very key that we get two characters from his family life. We get Kuda, who is very much a believer, and we get Christina, who's very much the, the voice of reason. She's very much the, the, the worldly, like, younger person who presents... I, she's, she's an interesting contrast between the two of them because, like, she's of Martin's generation... Or Martin is of her generation, which Kuda has made us... who's led us to believe is this uniquely skeptical generation that is like letting the devil into Mm. daily life because they don't believe in god and martin is is her age and is nevertheless so convinced that he's you know 200 years old or whatever old he says he is Um, i think he says 84 which makes which makes the flashbacks all the more fantastical because it's obviously just someone's like idea of what it was to be a vampire or what historically it meant for family members to be a vampire because it wouldn't be 84 years ago. It wouldn't look like that. It doesn't quite add up. Like that, I don't think 1910 or whatever looked like that, you know? 1890s? Oh, maybe it well, would look like that. Maybe I'm like not doing time right. So I if don't he's, know. It definitely looks Well, if he's 84, okay. but <laughs> he, you know, he looks to be about 20 then. That places it maybe in, you know, 1910. Were they still chasing vampires with torches in the 1910s, though? <laughs> well, it depends on where you are, right? They might still do True. that today, someplace. <laughs> it was like 10 years ago that they like would dig people up and cut up their head if they were hunting them. 
in certain countries. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure vampire hunts have happened like troubling me recently. On the subject of these flashbacks, though, on, on leading into the films, you'd mentioned that like Romero calls this the one of his films where he got every shot that he wanted. Mm. One thing that he did want with this film is he wanted all of it in black and white. Mm. And oh, I think the I think what we got is a testament to the fact that directors should not always get what they want. Because, yeah. I, and again, I'm, I'm not usually on the side of people who like can't follow a movie when it's like jumping back and forth, but... If this was all in black and white and it was jumping back and forth, I think it would just, uh, it, it would lose some efficacy, I think. And I, I, I don't know. I think too many people would be like scratching their head. Obviously the movie befuddled enough people as it is. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think the, I think the black and white cuts are good. And they also, they make it feel a little like channel surfing too. I don't know. They also make it feel like maybe this is like somebody who's just watched too much TV and this is like in their head. That's what I liked about the black and white was that it felt like, that's how we imagine in our cinematic language or in our like thought language of like that's how we think of flashbacks in the past but life happens in color it's black and white everyone's wearing these flowy garments yeah they've got candlesticks it's very uh it's it's a non-specific past it's fantasy it feels like fantasy to me and i liked that it was someone's fantasy whether it's the vampire hunters fantasy or the vampires so you both have mentioned Tatakuda, which is one of the greatest names ever in film, I will say. Um, he's the cousin, and he pretty much immediately says, like, you know, I believe in a world beyond science, and he very much believes in the family curse that he thinks makes Martin Nosferatu. His goal, he says, is to save Martin's soul and destroy him. What can you tell us about Kuda and what he believes? Uh, well, he's, uh, he's a strict Catholic, lot of lot of crucifixes in the house and the introduction of a vampire has only caused him to kind of double down in that catholicism he is very much a believer in all of the the classics of uh vampire lore and uh, another thing that really only came to me on kind of like repeat viewings he's not just an advocate for this sort of um family specific old world way of viewing things he's also very He's very much an advocate for Braddock itself. He's constantly talking about how, you know, young people just don't get it. That's why they're leaving Braddock. Um, he's, a, he's a grocer, and he's seemingly very much like a uh, like a friend. Uh, he, he has, like, a weird, like, parasocial relationship with... Uh, not weird, because it's not like he's a podcaster. He's a shop owner. Uh, he has, like, sort of a parasocial relationship, clearly, with, like, the other sort of, like, older and middle people in town and i love all of their like hand wringing over like how it's gonna look when he has like two two cousins of opposite sexes living at his house how's it gonna look <laughs> so so good ben i don't know anything about braddock itself in reality do you do you know anything i don't know about much it? about it other than i think its depiction in this movie is is fairly accurate but yeah it's it's you know it's like a suburb of pittsburgh <laughs> Yeah, I liked I liked the feel of the neighborhood too, and that he seemed to think it was for older people. But I think what he means is like that old mindset, because he speaks I, uh, to it being for older people, and like the rest of you can go away. And yeah, I don't know I, that that Rust Belt stuff. That just I, I I love that. It just feels very like lived in. Well, you're you know, a man of the Rust Belt, right? You're a Rust Belt man. I'm a I'm a Rust Belt man. You know, I uh, <laughs> I gotta stick to my roots. Uh, Oh, I, and the, the 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 whole the sequence when they're traveling by train to from uh, Pittsburgh to Braddock is incredible. I think it's the best looking thing Romero's ever filmed. 
and you don't know just who he is. Wonderful. There, you see them. Yeah, when, when he just shows up, and this this guy who we've never seen before walks up in this white suit. Who maybe he's the 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 horror villain. And I don't know. We get all these great shots of them just sort of dwarfed against this like brutalist sort of like you know late nineteenth century architecture. Um, we get a lot of them like reflected in puddles. He's in one of the grossest public bathrooms you've ever seen. That same guy is taking a shit twice. <laughs> and then there's like communal shit time later, like two of them. What, one of the things this movie captures beautifully is just camaraderie in a train station bathroom. <laughs> no, I just I find those public toilet shots especially evocative, and I think it's really funny that we see the same guy there at the end. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. <laughs> When I, I came in knowing nothing about Martin, which I love doing with movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have no idea who the older cousin is, who Kuda is. And I thought he was maybe going to, like, some sort of boarding house to dispel himself of his ills, you know, of his... Like, because until, like, later in that conversation, the house, does he mention that they're cousins? And it's right. just like he's just following this random guy to a house. Mm-hmm. And I loved... I loved just not having this guy murder somebody. We have no idea where he was going and why. Yeah. yeah. At the house when they arrive, Martin quickly defies all vampire-defining tropes. I mean, you see him in a mirror. He bites garlic. He enters Kuda's room uninvited. He holds a crucifix. I mean, throughout the movie, the whole point is that, you know, it's never entirely clear if he's actually a vampire. Even when he's talking with his cousin, you know, he says he's in his 80s and that he needs to drink blood or else he gets the shake. I mean, what is your take on Martin's disposition and how Romero presents all the vampire tropes? So I think officially he's presenting it as Martin believes he is a vampire, but that the traditional tenets of uh, vampire lore are bullshit, mm-hmm. basically. But I do think we should also take that scene when he walks into Kuda's room as also him saying that all of this is bullshit, basically. That there's no magic thing. It's, it's, it's purely nurture. It's, it's you know been impressed upon him that he's a murderer and bloodthirsty, etc., yeah, I love where he's like, there's no magic or none of the magic's real. Oh, when he bites the garlic. Oh. <laughs> God, I've seen it a hundred times and it never fails to turn my stomach to see someone bite into a bulb of garlic like an apple. And I like garlic. <laughs> I also feel like it speaks a little bit to this like hopelessness of like, you can't help me. Like you think you're going to like save my soul, but I am this thing <clears throat> and I don't believe in your magic and you know yeah right i'm a vampire whether or not there's any magic yeah my favorite cut in the film is after martin tells kuda it's not magic it switches right over to martin in his room reading a book about magic tricks (laughs) oh yeah and then he does the magic trick with the thing uh yeah he has the like the finger cutter yeah (laughs) great and i like that that sequence has like a really goofy almost like third man-esque score I like that the, the, the movie is sort of like undercutting like the, the, the sort of seriousness with like a goofy sort of jaunty musical score. Mm-hmm. He, d- he does that a bit at times in Season of the Witch too where it's like the music's almost playful when it's like, this is getting serious. You know, it just doesn't quite match up. He does it obviously in Amusement Park as well, although, the, you know, the, the setting makes a little more sense for, mm. you know, goofy music. Mm-hmm. Romero plays with the vampire lore more throughout the film, particularly Martin starts calling into a radio show, and he becomes a minor anonymous celebrity. What's going on with him on the radio show there? Uh, it's 
one of one of my favorite bits. He starts calling into a local radio show. He and yeah, uh, he one of the kind of like changes that that comes about when he moves into the house is that he and Christine both get phones put in, and uh, he starts calling in. Uh, he starts calling himself the Count. And uh, they don't really believe his stories, but they sort of like egg him on and get him talking about it. And this is kind of where we get like the most, um, the, the closest view into like Martin's psychology that we get, because we get him kind of like going through how he views the vampire lore. It becomes clear that in his mind, he's very obviously a vampire, but most of what everyone thinks about when they think of a vampire is bullshit. Most notably, what he really focuses on in these calls is the, the sexual aspect of it. Vampires are very sexy in the popular imagination. Popular imagination, they often have like harems, and he very he, he makes it clear like, well, he says oh, you don't need all that, uh, but you know it, that's obviously his way of like smoothing over. Uh, I'm this, <laughs> I'm this <laughs> incel vampire. And he also calls it the sexy stuff. <laughs> the sexy stuff, <laughs> sexy yeah. Stuff. And he hasn't done the sexy stuff with anyone awake. He's anyone too shy. Awake. Or without blood. Yeah. yeah, but he is like basically on the radio admitting to murders and all this stuff, and no one really seems to question it. Well, it's late night radio. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, <laughs> they think Romero, it's a gag. Yeah, but it's maybe again Romero like leaning a touch heavily into like the the influence of the, the impact of like violence in society that like we're we're so uh, we're like immune to this. Like we can all we can all like joke about this, but it's a much more lighthearted way of like handling that a much more like real world way of handling that because yeah late night radio is shit like this um and it almost acts sure. like um therapy for him his radio show like he's talking about all these things that he can't talk to anyone about but it's like very light-heartedly done like you said so one of the great sequences in this movie is in the middle where martin kind of starts watching a woman and kind of appears at her door and then he gets her garage door code it's definitely the creepiest Martin scene. But again, like you're kind of set up to root for him in it, even though he's about to rape and murder a woman. I mean, how do you guys feel about that scene? Because it is so affecting the way it's shot and everything. I mean, it just doesn't let up. Well, see, I wouldn't say we root for him early on. In the planning of it, I would think, I think actually it's the one scene where I found myself starting to wonder is Martin far craftier than he's letting on when he figures out like the garage code and shit, like when he's really like scoping it out, mm -hmm. we watch him even kind of pretending to be like childish when he's like at line at the, the ice cream truck. It, it, I, I found myself starting to wonder like how much of his demeanor is like put on, but then because things start to fall apart, and it's this crazy, chaotic slasher sequence. It almost reminded me of like some of the kills you see in Scream, where they're like running back and forth and everyone's falling down. Yeah. Then we start to almost like feel, you know, like invested in this like scrappy kill. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's a really interesting. It, it's probably my favorite sequence Romero has ever directed, and I like that. Like, there's the a lot. Of, there's a lot of like phone play involved in it. A lot of like intercepting people's calls. And you get this like crazy like bleeping and blooping on the soundtrack, which is actually very similar to what we often get on the soundtrack in Season of the Witch. Uh, the disorienting dream soundtrack is often this sort of like. Yeah, it felt almost um, farcical that whole 
sequence to me where they're like stumbling around and he's beeping on the phone and he's falling down the stairs. Like there was something almost silly about it. It's also so funny too that like 911 wasn't always the number for like law enforcement. So it, it seems even especially farcical in like 2021, it like it sounds like Homer Simpson-ish for someone to be like, what's the fucking number for 911? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he, he is presented as like almost meticulous you know in his preparations but then he gets into her bedroom and there's a man there and he says you weren't supposed to be here <laughs> oh it's so gross when he like sticks him in the neck too the blood in this movie looks incredible this is tom savini's first collaboration with uh, romero and i think his first credit altogether and the blood just looks like red food dye in like clear jelly or something it's just so like goopy and so red it just i I thought it like it puts you in like Martin's like headspace, like what someone who was addicted to blood would think of blood as looking like. You know what I mean? It might as well be glowing. So later on in the movie, Martin starts delivering groceries, and he begins an affair with a woman. Uh, so uh, he uh, he sort of haltingly strikes up an affair with one of um, Kuda's customers, who is um, seemingly. Uh, She's uh, like a lonely alcoholic whose husband is seemingly perpetually out of town. And she kind of presents it like that. She also, I, she sort of jokingly says to Martin that he's unfaithful. And it clearly like Martin has no idea what she's talking about. This is where we really see like Martin's sort of uh, ignorance of quote unquote, the sexy stuff um, <laughs> writ large. But again, some of the sequences with them are really like tenderly shot and like beautifully framed there's a sequence toward the end of the film with them having this sort of like picnic on this hill overlooking braddock uh when he's clearly told her that he's a vampire she says oh you know i wish what you had was catching he says oh in the movies it is catching um it's so sad <laughs> and so tender and again like uh i don't know this this, this movie is uh a a, a far more quote-unquote complicated takes on the vampire genre are a dime a dozen and i i don't know I think this is the best of the best at a time when such an idea was probably pretty novel so for those of you who have not seen martin might be a good time to check out because we're going to go through the whole film here because the ending is worth discussing um time to check out though so this is your warning <laughs> <laughs> So the affair ends poorly is probably a word for it. Yeah, basically, uh, after Martin has this sort of uh, aborted attempt to, to murder this woman, he, he goes on this sort of like long chase. He's he's basically started, um, like, he's become kind of a, like a vulture of a vampire. He's picking off kind of like homeless people. Uh, he's, he's picking off, um, you know, wherever he can. He's like drinking blood out of the gutter. And uh, he comes back one day after an especially close call with the police. Uh, it's the one time we hear Mrs. Santini's first name, and I forgot to write it down. I can't remember what it was. He, he, he shouts it as he's walking in, in like a very like honey on home sort of a situation. Mm. Uh, and he, he uh, comes into the bathroom to find that she's killed herself. And very tellingly, he immediately calls into the radio show, or at least, you know, so we hear on the audio, he's... He's on the radio like, I, I didn't do it. I swear I didn't do it. Well, you know, just goes to show you, I guess I'm not made for relationships. He seems to come to a moment of like realization on the phone with the radio host. He's like, you know, I guess this isn't for me, but I guess I've just got to basically like keep living and just like try to be a normal person effectively. And we see him, there's this like parade through Braddock and we see him sort of like walking alongside it as if he's finally starting to like ingratiate himself in life 
as if like the fact that he's not a vampire is maybe starting to click for him. Then we get a shot of the church and we zoom out and he's in his bed and Kuda says, you expect me to believe Mrs. Santini killed herself? No one in the town, Martin. And he drives a stake through his heart. Uh, you know, we, we, we put a spoiler tag on there, but it kind of ends the only way a story like this can possibly end, right? Mm -hmm. um, Snow, not knowing anything about the movie, I imagine that ending probably took you by surprise. Yeah, um, but I, I, I loved it. I mean, I felt like it was the proper ending. I also, um, just on that whole thing where he's become sort of this bottom feeder vampire and he's in this relationship he talks about none of the girls seem pretty to him anymore and maybe it's because i'm doing the sexy stuff for real and then he starts having trouble killing and only killing these sort of individuals that that he's not having that same sort of like bloodlust and lust lust for and it gives this really sad echo just at the end where he's talking on the radio about it and how he didn't do it. And it almost feels like he could maybe not be a vampire, right? Like he's mm -hmm. finding like real life and he's suddenly not having the same compulsions in the same way, even though he feels shaky, but he's not his relationship with his acts of violence with his killings are, is changing and then he gets killed. And so I really loved how abrupt that was especially because I couldn't possibly imagine an ending where we see Martin like getting better. Uh -huh. Like, I don't even know Martin what that would look like. And it would ruin the mystery, story. the movie of like whether he's a vampire or not, if we saw him getting better. But at the same time, yeah, I don't know. It just felt like the only natural ending, but it also if, felt if very abrupt and surprising at the same time, like the way they did it, where it was just like cut to it. And it does almost echo back to the Night of the Living Dead ending, too, because it's like, oh, maybe help is here. And then it's like, oh, uh -huh. no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Isn't even the season of the witch ending is that sort of like blunt, like back to reality. Very abrupt. I mean, it maybe depends a little bit more on interpretation there, but it's certainly abrupt. I did um, not so think she was going to kill her husband. No. I didn't no. see that coming at all. So that was very abrupt. So that's the other connecting thread between these two films is that you know, season of the witch, it's like, she might be a witch. And Martin's like, he might be a vampire. What are your final takeaways on both these characters? I mean, both of them, the obvious thing for me that sticks out is that it's both about the power of belief of who you are, shaping who you are for both of them. Um, I think for Joan, arguably that becomes a positive thing. And for Martin, it's more like listening to these outside sources and becomes a negative thing. I mean, not that it's that black and white. Obviously, there's nuance of negative and positive in both. Mm -hmm. But um, both stories really speak to this psychology of like what you believe you are is what you become. Mm -hmm. In Martin, we see the effects of what you're told you are. We see someone turned into a monster because, you know, their family has constantly told them they're a monster. And in Season of the Witch, we see somebody, you know, who's constantly being told they're one thing, taking kind of control of their life and becoming another thing. And I don't know, even if it's not unambiguously a triumphant ending, we certainly see them, like, changing their circumstances because of those decisions they've made. And I don't know, I think they both really kind of speak to what's so interesting about Romero, especially in this era. I think it's pretty inarguable that Romero 
did improve as a director between these two films. What's your biggest takeaway on how he approached these films? And like, what did he improve most? I I don't know. I think he got a little bit more comfortable with ambiguity, certainly. Mm -hmm. I think he was a little less blunt in his like social messaging, Martin. Yeah, I don't know. I think he was also probably working with like a slightly better stable of actors. He'd obviously worked with Lincoln Mazel already in the amusement park. And um, I think he probably knew he had a, uh, a, a real talent um, and uses him to great effect in, um, in Martin. Um, John Amplis, who plays Martin, is in Knight Riders. I don't know if he's in any other movies, uh, period. I think they're interesting to watch together because you can see a director who's clearly like working out the same stylistic preoccupations at least when it comes to kind of horror movie ideas and iconography being put onto the real world, some of the same ideas. I'm glad he made them in the order he did, because I really loved what you said, Bennett, about the sort of um, the, the magical timing of him figuring out himself as a director while making this movie about a woman figuring herself out as a woman and a witch. And I couldn't imagine him making Martin at that time because I don't think he would have captured what he was trying to do as well. What I felt like he had this mastery of over in um, mastery over uh, illustrating these different perceptions that could be delusions and could be fantasy. And he had sort of, yeah, the way he went from the different perceptions of Martin, I thought was really masterful. So apparently in interviews, he has said that, like, he didn't think he could direct Martin unless he himself had, like, a clear answer about whether or not Martin is a vampire. And, like, I, I think that's reflective of him getting more, like, mature as a filmmaker because, like, even in capturing ambiguity, he knew that he had to have, like, a clear sense in his head of, like, what he was trying to communicate. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. It sounds like dumb and like paradoxical and like brain to be like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really precise in it's imprecision and, and, you know, unambiguous in it's ambiguity. But I do think that like, um, Martin gets, I don't know, uh, there's a precision in the ambiguity. Like, even if the characters are raw, even if a character like Martin is like mixed up and like, doesn't know where his head is at, it's very clear that like Romero has an idea of what is really going on. And all of the uncertainty and how he presents that makes it more interesting. All right. Why don't we wrap this up? Let's make a pick. I think you've both kind of teased it, but Season of the Witch versus Martin, which one are you taking? <laughs> um, you know, Season of the Witch is really great. Uh, I think there's a lot to recommend it. Uh, you know, anybody, if you have any interest in Romero, horror movies at all, check out Season of the Witch. But um, that's, you know an interesting movie that's better than it gets credit for. And Martin is one of the best horror movies ever made. Uh, it's got to be Martin. <laughs> uh, I think I would choose Martin as well. However, I think a lot of the people I know would get more out of Season of the Witch and connect more out of Season of the Witch. So I would see myself recommending that more to the people I personally know in my life <laughs> as something that would be accessible and enjoyable to them. Um, but like you said, like it's not as much of a horror movie so that could have some some to do with that um but as a movie overall I think I would choose Martin as well mostly because I also feel like season of the witch it was very blunt it was very easy to pick up on the themes he was putting down and they were still really interesting and there was so much there to think about 
but I feel like I got what I needed out of my watches. With Martin, I feel like I would get something new every time I watched it. So, like Desert Island scenario, I would much rather have Martin. I totally agree with both of you. I mean, Season of the Witch, I don't think should be overlooked. It's it's a very strong movie in its own right. But Martin, yeah, it's... I'm going to say Night Riders is my favorite Romero film, but Martin and Dawn of the Dead, for me, kind of fight for that number two spot. They're, yeah, both great. So, Bennett, you've done three of these episodes. I think you probably agree with me that it's probably worth doing a split picks of Hooper versus carpenter versus craven versus romero but maybe do you want to just give a teaser of how you think those four go head to head against each other you know i hate to sound non-committal i hate to sound everybody wins but they're all great they're all really wonderful that's why we're doing the series (laughs) (laughs) i think i think as has been covered in both of my both my hooper and craven episodes i think hooper is the best i think he's the best horror filmmaker ever i think he was like literally incapable of an uninteresting image or idea. Then I'd probably go Carpenter. Um, he's great. There's a reason everyone is constantly still aping his style. There's a reason he's still, you know, the master of horror and, you know, could, could pull it off in other genres as well. Then I'd probably go Romero for that regional flavor we mentioned. And then Craven, because I think Craven was more an idea guy than an image guy. And, um, clearly was not a cinephile i don't know there's i think that i think the cinephile director thing can get kind of tedious when they're constantly making references but like i don't know the fact that romero lives more in an academic world sometimes come, comes across in his sequences not being especially compelling snow do you want to throw in any thoughts about those four filmmakers or you pre- <laughs> need more time to study yeah. <laughs> we've been working on this since august or june yeah <laughs> and I've, I've seen some really wonderful movies, but I'm not particularly thoroughly well-watched, so I haven't seen enough by some of those directors. I've seen, like, bits from each of them, but not enough to speak to them intelligently. Totally fine. <laughs> I had to watch about 15 myself, so. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. These movies are both great, so awesome yeah. way to end the series. Bennett, you get the MVP award for doing three of these, so. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Thanks for putting up with my first podcast. I feel like I was a little shaky, but I look forward to doing more and getting better. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) We'll have you back. Don't worry. (laughs) A thousand times better than my first time. (laughs) Oh, yeah? But is that saying much? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, that wraps up. October Horror Series Toby Hooper John Carpenter Wes Craven and George Romero thank you so much for listening and we'll be back with more in the future <laughs>